0: Welcome inside Appalachia, I'm Mason Adams. This week we visit with West Virginia Trappers to learn about the fur trade in the 21st century.
1: It's not for everybody. (laughs) If you are extremely tender hearted, it probably wouldn't be what you'd want to do.
0: We also meet a county fair champion who keeps racking up the blue ribbons. I had almost
2: 1500 and then I earned 60 more after that, and then I earned 33 the other day at the fair this year
0: already. And we hear an update on the Mountain Valley Pipeline. Construction has begun again, but some people wonder if it's even needed.
3: We've said from the start that this was not a good idea. This was a very expensive pipeline going through very sensitive terrain, and that there was not a compelling need.
0: You'll hear these stories and more this week inside Appalachia.
4: Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Solar Holler, currently helping more than 1,000 Appalachian families and businesses control their energy costs by producing their own solar power. More
0: at SolarHoller.com. Welcome Inside Appalachia, I'm Mason Adams. Every summer when I was a kid, we went to Gatlinburg, Tennessee. That's where I saw my first raccoon skin hat. Much of America associates these hats with the Appalachian Mountains, partly from the story of Daniel Boone and partly because of the hillbilly stereotype. Turns out, the fur trade was one of Appalachia's first industries. Before coal or timber, people in the mountains traded pelts. European traders and settlers swapped iron tools, cookware, and whiskey for animal skins collected by native hunters. Skins were sent overseas and made a splash in the European fashion scene. The industry flourished for centuries, made fortunes, and led to wars. Trapping was still lucrative well into the latter part of the last century. These days, West Virginia fur trappers struggle to earn a living. The markets fickle and tied to fashion and public opinion. Despite the instability, some trappers in West Virginia have adapted or found new careers using their particular skills. Folkways reporter Lauren Griffin has this story. And just a word... If you're squeamish about trapping or animal skins, you might want to skip this story. It's 6 minutes long.
5: Every March, fur trappers and buyers gather in Glenville, West Virginia, for the annual West Virginia Trappers Association fur auction. Raccoons, coyotes, bobcats, and other animal hides are on display. Excited trappers catch up with each other, waiting for the bidding to start. Buy the whole lot.
6: 20, now 30, 30, now 40. So I'm Jeremiah Whitlatch. I'm the West Virginia Trappers Association president.
5: This is Whitlatch's first year as president, but trapping has always been a big part of his life.
6: I got into this because my great-grandpa, my grandpa, and my great-uncle were all trapped. I remember going to their farm in Work County, and grandpa would be sitting there on his stool skinning foxes.
5: The size of the trapping community shrinks with each year. When fur prices were high in the 1980s. The association hosted multiple auctions in a year. Now there's only one.
6: This is a fraction of what fur sales normally like. Usually there's been years where we've got 5,000 coons piled up back here.
5: The price of untanned or green fur has been dropping steadily as public opinion and markets have turned away from fur products.
6: It's all supply and demand, really.
5: The market might be erratic, but that doesn't keep the die-hard trappers away. To trapper Austin Stutler, The auction is a yearly event where he connects with his community and celebrates the successes of the past year.
4: The fur auction of Glenville is one of my favorite days of the year. It's such a big deal to me and my family that all of my buddies will go up there. It's a Friday, Saturday, Sunday thing.
5: In his early 20s, Stutler is one of the younger trappers at the auction. He's been trapping since he was a kid.
4: Um, Well, I'm the owner of Windy Ridge Trapper. Um, We're a small fur buying and trapping supply wholesale company um, that was founded in Ward County, West Virginia.
5: Stutler recently inherited the business from his father. At Windy Ridge, they specialize in water trapping. Water trapping targets fur bearers like beavers, muskrats, and minks. Right now, beavers in demand. That's partly because sales for cowboy hats have gone up with the rising popularity of the hit western TV show Yellowstone. To get a nice felt cowboy hat, you're gonna need beaver fur. But there are uses beyond the fur, too.
4: Literally, the only part of a beaver we don't use is the bones. The skull, I've got a guy that I sell the skull to. All of the meat we turn into bait that we resell. The castorium, the castor glands, we use in the bait that we make. What is the purpose of killing anything if you're not gonna try to use every last bit of it that you can?
5: Anyone can learn to trap, but it takes a lot of patience. The law states trappers must check their set traps daily. They also might be dealing with some challenging conditions.
4: Beaver trapping is one of the easiest forms of trapping that there is if you have a boat and if you're a little bit touched. <laughs> because beaver trapping, you're almost always gonna fall in, you're gonna get wet, and you're someone's gonna end up about freezing to death.
5: It's a mild March day, and Austin Stutler and his father, Jason Stutler, are out on their boat on the Ohio River. They're checking on the beaver traps they'd set the day before. The traps dangle down into the water from the edge of the bank. Austin reaches in and pulls up a trap.
4: You ready? Uh, something came loose. Yeah, we got it. Yeah, Good deal. It's a, it's a small one, but we got one.
5: Trapping an animal is only half the process. Given the low economic yields after trapping and processing a hide, some trappers have had to think of new ways to apply their skills to make a living. Mike Gray is a fur trapper that has repurposed his skills for a job in residential wildlife removal. He's been trapping since he was a kid, too.
1: And a lot of times people ask me as a kid, Mike, can you box trap this for me? You know, and my gosh, I was out there at fourteen years old trapping raccoons and groundhogs.
5: Gray has a museum worthy collection of traps, and knows the best kinds of snares and footholds to use for the different fur bearers. He shows me how to set a land trap. The trap is staked into the earth, leaving the pressure plate exposed but slightly camouflaged.
1: Trappers are gadget people. We're always uh, figuring out different ways to do stuff and different ways to make sets. And there's not a trapper anywhere that probably doesn't have a dozen different digging tools (laughs) when you only need one.
5: (laughs) Gray doesn't fur trap much anymore, but he uses his skills to remove animals from homes. He says that in urban areas like Morgantown, West Virginia, his skills are in demand.
1: The influx of people from D.C. and different places uh, coming in, some of those folks have I mean, yeah, was a squirrel, see a raccoon, but it's a whole lot different when it's in the walls of your house.
5: He's translated his fur trapping skills into a career that protects people.
1: The animal captures only half of it. I mean, if you can't make that individual feel safe in their house, you really haven't done your job.
5: When he was a kid, Gray had to teach himself how to trap. So these days, he serves as the education co-chair with the Trappers Association. He helps teach young trappers the skills of the trade.
1: You can be anything and be a trapper. It's not for everybody. (laughs) If you are extremely tender-hearted, it probably wouldn't be what you'd want to do. Something does die. But a lot of us made money when we were kids that way.
5: Gray isn't fur trapping much these days, but he looks forward to the auction like everyone else. It brings together trappers, young and old, year after year. Some members of the younger generation, like Austin Stutler, are a little worried. Is there dedication enough to keep trapping viable?
4: I do have a, a genuine fear that whenever I am in my 50s or 60s that, that there will not be as many of us, but the reason that it's not going to go away, this is, for most of us, this is not a hobby. This is, this is who we are. Two dollars, fifty cents a piece on coon rods to buyer number four.
5: For Inside Appalachia, I'm Lauren Griffin.
0: That story is part of our Folkways reporting project, which covers arts and culture in the region. To see photos from the annual West Virginia Fur Auction or to hear the story again, visit our website, wvpublic.org. There's nothing quite like the county fair. You can pet a goat, win a goldfish, watch a demolition derby, and get motion sick on the tilt a whirl. A staple of county and state fairs are the annual craft competitions where everyone from 4-H kids to the local dentist brings their finest quilts, pumpkins, or peanut butter fudge to be judged. Winners sometimes get modest cash prizes, but mostly they're competing for bragging rights and a highly coveted blue ribbon. Few have been as successful as Linda Skeens. The Russell County, Virginia resident has won hundreds of ribbons, which has made her a sensation on social media. Now Skeens has released a cookbook, featuring her winning recipes, plus poems, pictures, and a peek into her life in Southwest Virginia. Producer Bill Lynch called her up to ask about winning contests and collecting recipes.
6: So how many ribbons have you won so far?
2: Well, when we went to Alabama last year to visit the people doing my cookbook, I had almost 1,500, and then I earned 60 more after that, and then I earned 33 the other day at the fair this year already so quite a few
6: (laughs) that's got to be close to some kind of a world record somewhere
2: it's so weird you'd ask that they've been at least a dozen people say have you broken a guinness world book of records i said well i don't know because i don't know how to find out but they they seem to think i have
6: (laughs) how long have you been competing
2: around 30 years
6: not everybody does this. A lot of folks cook, but not a lot of folks get involved with with fair competitions. What I've was just, what got you into it?
2: I've just always loved it. I love doing it. I made a lot. I've made a lot of good friends during the years. I have fun doing the crafts, and I have fun canning stuff, and I just love baking. I just like doing it. It's something I enjoy.
6: Do you remember your first competition?
2: Yeah, it was probably around 84. I entered a set of pillowcases that I had. That's all I had. My son was entering a model car, and he asked me to enter them. And I told him they probably wouldn't win. And he encouraged me. And after I got started, I've liked it ever since. And I'm not stopped. (laughs) Well, since it's a cookbook, what was
6: the first food dish that you entered?
2: Probably fudge, because I've been entering fudge Probably the cho- peanut butter or the chocolate fudge was probably been my first. I've always entered candy and cookies and cakes and biscuits, cornbread, stuff like that. So.
6: How do you save your recipes? Do you keep them in a box? You have a book.
2: I've got two little shoe boxes, plastic shoe boxes, full of my very favorite. Then I've got one box that's probably got a thousand or more in it, old ones. And then I ha- I collect cookbooks. I've got several cookbooks that I cook from, like my country and western cookbook I ordered 20 years ago. It's got. Cowboy recipes. I did James Arnest's Gunsmoke Chili on a video in my home. It's one of my favorites. And then I have a Betty Crocker one that's like duct taped together. I have all kinds of cookbooks. I love cooking out of them. Do
6: you have a favorite recipe in your cookbook? Mm,
2: Yeah, my Mexican cornbread. That's always my favorite. I love that stuff. I could eat it by itself. Any Mm.
6: favorites that are too good to share?
2: A taco soup's good. You can't enter that in the fair, and it's really good. My husband likes my catfish and coleslaw, so, you know, but me personally, I like about all of it, honest. I, I like to cook simple and where you can find the ingredients and it's easy to make. Most people that's tried my stuff that I've talked to at book signings lately tell me what they really like. is it easy to make, but it's good.
6: Seeing as you're someone who has been in, I can't even fathom the number of competitions, walk me through one.
2: I do my crafts and I pick them out in the fall, what I'm going to make for next year. And I work on them in the winter when it's cold. Then I can stuff in the spring and the summer. I pick out what I want to put in there and bake stuff. About two weeks before the fair, I make me a list of what I'm going to put in there, what I need, go buy it, And I cook like crazy for two or three days. And I, I'm very organized. I have a list of what I want to do. And a lady asked me once on an interview, she said, how many trial runs do you make for your fudge? And I said, what do you mean? And she said, you know, do you do like chefs? Do you make four or five to get it perfect? I said, no, ma'am, food costs too much. I said, I make one batch. I pick out the prettiest pieces, put it in there. And if it wins, it does. And if it don't, it don't. I don't throw away nothing. I don't waste food. I'd I'd encourage anybody just to try anything you want to try because you never know. A girl was on my Facebook page this summer, said she'd never entered a fair and she entered a cake and won a ribbon. And she was just tickled to death. And I was for her because you don't know the judges. You never meet them. They close the doors when they judge food. They don't see your name on nothing. So they don't know you either. Your your stuff is judged by the way it looks, the way it tastes. And, and some years you win and a lot. Some years you don't win as much, but you know, it's fun to do.
6: The rest of your time when you're not competing in a fair, you're bound to have some downtime, right? Fairs aren't year-round.
2: Well, I have six grandbabies, two great-grandbabies. I have a husband of almost 59 years. I have Kathy, my daughter, and we've got a 69 Plymouth Roadrunner. We go to car shows on Saturday with our friends. And we like to play cards on Saturday night with our best friend, Spades. And, yes, I like to win. I try to win. (laughs) They're pretty good, though. And I like to watch poker tournaments on TV with my husband. He's teaching me how to play poker a little bit slowly. I read my Bible every day, whether I read anything else or not. That's one thing I've made a point of doing.
6: Well, with the book signings and people coming up to you, what do they tell
2: you? 95% have said they thought it was the most beautiful cookbook they've ever saw. They really like the poems that I've written myself. My story, the pictures. Most people were expecting just a paperback, I think, maybe, or a cookbook with recipes, and they were just really, literally amazed, and told me how much they enjoyed it, and they're cooking out of it. And it's just been—I mean, I've met so many nice people. We was invited to Bristol last week. Me and Kathy, uh, a young man, had invited me to a, a bake sale last year at a retirement center. And he started working at a little place because a gingerbread restaurant. And he invited me up for a book signing. And they cooked my foods in that restaurant for three or four days. And I sold books, and it was just so people were just really happy for me.
6: So what's next? You got a sequel coming out?
2: I don't know yet. We're just gonna finish this one up first because I'm doing a lot of interviews right now. I'm doing some. Got you know, my picture in two, or three newspapers down here, and. I've traveled quite a bit, probably going to be traveling for some more book signings and just getting stuff like that done. I don't know. They might be one. I'm not sure.
6: Linda, it's been a pleasure talking with you.
2: It's been a pleasure talking with you. I've enjoyed it. And, you know, one thing I enjoy is talking to people like you guys, Uh, just everyday people, like different people in different places and their different customs stuff. It's, It's nice to do that.
0: That was county fair champion Linda Skeens speaking with Bill Lynch. Her cookbook is... Blue Ribbon Kitchen. Coming up, out on the Strip, some car enthusiasts love flashy new models with spinners and neon lights. Others keep it old school. See, I'm into the the traditional style cars.
7: That's what I like. I like stuff that looked like it was built in 1960. So, My term there is less is more.
0: That's after the break. You're inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams.
4: Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University, educating the people of our region and beyond for more than 150 years. More information at concord.edu.
0: Summer is a season many of us spend in cars, whether on drives to the beach or the Smokies, or sometimes just out driving on the Strip. For over 50 years in Roanoke, Virginia, that's been Williamson Road. On any given Friday night, you can see modified cars and trucks with neon lights, spinning rims, and streamlined spoilers strutting from north to south and back again. And often, you'll see old-timey antique cars out there too. This story, which I reported in 2020, is about a family of mechanics who spent years developing the skills to get those vintage cars just right. This story about cars actually started out as a story about moonshine. Appalachians have been making and selling whiskey since Europeans first settled in the mountains. Farmers could make more money by turning their corn crop into liquor than by hauling it to market and selling it as food. But in 1920, Prohibition made it illegal to make, sell, or drink whiskey. Mountaineers kept making it anyway. To get it out of the mountains without being caught, they used a new technology spreading across America, automobiles. The best type of car for running moonshine was one with lots of room to carry whiskey and a lot of speed to outrun the cops. A lot of them hauled in four-door
8: sedans because you could pack more in there. That's Roddy Moore.
0: He retired this year as director of the Blue Ridge Institute, a folk life center in Farron, Virginia, smack in the middle of what was once called the moonshine capital of the world. Some cars, you could
8: get 40 cases of uh, liquor in there, and uh, that's an investment.
0: Roddy says the price of whiskey fluctuated, but during Prohibition, the average price for a gallon was about $1.50. A 40-case load could sell for $360. A lot of money back then. Uh, You really don't want to be caught. You want to take it wherever you're going, deliver it, get the money, and come home. But things didn't always happen according to plan. That's why some moonshiners hired drivers who could outrun the police. They drove souped-up cars with bigger engines and a stiff suspension so the rear end wouldn't sag from the weight of all that whiskey. Some of those drivers went on to become NASCAR stars in the 60s and 70s, but Roddy says they were just the guys who got the limelight. The real
8: heroes that don't get the attention are the, the mechanics that were building the suspensions and uh, that would handle a large, heavy weight of liquor in a trunk or handle, uh, where you, if you had to speed down the highway you could go around the curve faster than the car behind you and your motor was modified and you could outrun
0: someone else that tradition of enhancing cars with custom parts has endured beyond the days of bootleggers roddy grew up tinkering with cars in welch west virginia and he still does today but he says when he needs body work done he calls his friend jeff bennett well his, his father had been uh in the
8: automotive business, and was interested in hot rods, and Jeff grew up with that, and that interest went from father to son, like it's gone from Jeff
0: to his son, so you've got three generations right there. Jeff's father, Jack Bennett, ran Perfection Auto Body in Roanoke for 25 years and died last year. Jeff now operates a custom auto shop out of his home, where his son, Jeremy, assists him with IN bodywork. Jeff functions a lot like the mechanics that Roddy says were the real heroes of moonshining, never winning plaudits behind the driver's seat, but doing a lot of work behind the scenes.
7: I, I worked on a lot of race cars and painted a lot of race cars. And I went to the races, but I never did it myself. I went to car shows and cruised around. I never had anything that would run fast.
0: Bennett's garage sits next to his house in Roanoke. On a balmy autumn evening, Jeff's son Jeremy works with him in the shop. Jeremy meticulously buffs the inside of a car hood, preparing it for another layer of paint.
7: Yeah, I mean, you gotta sand it and get all up in the edges and cracks and stuff good or the paint won't stick.
0: Very few people notice the inside of a car's hood. But for Jeremy and his dad Jeff, the inside of the hood is just as important as the parts of the car you do see. They don't want to just fix a car up for show, and they definitely don't want to add any of the gaudier features you can find on the street like neon lights and spoilers, which look like wings mounted on the backs of cars. Jeff says he prefers a vintage look. See, I'm into
7: the the traditional style cars. That's what I like. I like stuff that looked like it was built in
0: 1960. So my term there is less is more. The Bennett men are all about cars that are built right from the ground up. And I mean that literally. One of the cars in their shop is stripped down to its frame, with only the engine and front seat sitting on it bare. This is how Jeff completely restores a car. He strips it down, then builds it back up. He did the same thing to a 1931 Ford Coupe he bought in North Carolina.
7: Basically made the whole bottom of the car it was rotted off. Built the frame. Built I
0: built the whole car. <laughs> From nothing. There was really nothing there. Jeff's dad taught him how to do that.
7: He was a perfectionist. I guess he tried to teach me to be a perfectionist also, you know. His big thing, and I preach it to him, his edges. Make sure the edges of your Everything is straight. Everything is perfect. Everything is fixed. Edges will make you or break you, boy. That's
0: what my dad did. Jack Bennett, Jeff's dad, died last year. And Jeff's still grieving his loss. He says his dad taught him so much. The first time I ever painted a car for the
7: shop, I painted some cars for myself, but this was in when paint was kind of evolving into new base coat, clear coats and all this stuff, our painter quit. Actually, my dad probably fired him, but anyway, we had a car sitting in a paint booth and it had to be painted. He's like, you're gonna have to paint that car. I said, I had never sprayed that stuff before. So he said, well, just go in there and paint. That's all I can tell you. So I, I went in there and started prepping the car I came back out of the paint booth. He said, "Come here a minute." I said, "What?" We had a picnic table there. <laughs> but he, he told me to sit at that table. I said, For the table. This is the first time I've really talked about him since he died. So and we sat there and had a beer. He said, "You feel better now?" I said. Yeah, he said, go paint the car. I went there and
0: painted the car. And it, was, it looked really, really good. Jeff's dad taught him to paint, and now he's taught his son Jeremy to paint.
7: I guess he's taught me everything, really, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, because I didn't know a clue about how to do anything before I started here when I was like 14.
0: Jeremy helps Jeff in a shop, but he's also got his own interest, Volkswagen Bugs. He's completely restored two so far, including one vanilla and mint beetle he drives around sometimes.
7: It's a good car to go out and drive and have fun. Because, you know, you get them too nice, and people like to sit them in the garage and look at them. And I, I'd get in this car and go somewhere right now.
0: Jeremy's in college, taking classes and also working a full-time job. But he still spends about 10 hours a week with his dad in the shop. So, the Bennets are keeping their family tradition alive while carrying on an Appalachian craft that's been flourishing since Prohibition tinkering with cars. Jeremy's bugs probably wouldn't make good bootlegging cars, though. Not enough trunk space. Recently, the nonprofit Environmental Working Group conducted tap water testing in 18 states. Researchers found New Martinsville, West Virginia had the second-highest level of PFAS in the country at 40 parts per trillion. PFAS are also known as forever chemicals. They're used in industrial processes and consumer products. They linger in the environment and pose a threat to human health. WVPB reporter Chris Schultz spoke with EWG senior scientist Tasha Stroiber about water contamination and possible solutions.
9: Can you give me an idea of what some of the contaminants historically have been that people are concerned about in their water and what the concerns are today?
10: There are a number of drinking water contaminants. Some of them are regulated. Some of them are unregulated. Um, There hasn't been a new drinking water regulation for an unregulated contaminant in the last 20 years. So the EPA's proposal for PFOA or PFOS that is something that has been a long time coming and that we've been waiting for for quite some time. People probably don't really think too much about contaminants in their drinking water, especially if you get your drinking water from a public utility. People might take it for granted and think that, well, since the drinking water is coming out of my tap, it's from a public utility. It's perfectly fine. It's perfectly safe. However, we do know that there are A lot of these unregulated contaminants and the regulations that we do have in place, a lot of them haven't been updated based on the most current science and what we know about potential health effects. So a lot of them aren't as protective as we would want them to be as well.
9: I actually briefly hopped on y'all's website and looked at my local provider, and I was a little surprised at what I saw.
10: The Tabrider database is a good resource. It's the online tool. Anybody can use it to look up their drinking water.
9: I am curious to know a little bit more about why EWG makes the differentiation between legal and safe.
10: What we would like to see, what would the gold standard would be, those would be limits that would be purely based on protecting health and what we know about um, how these contaminants can harm your health. They are often quite lower than what the federal legal limits would allow. They're either either based on California's public health goals or EPA's um, IRIS assessments um, or often other state agency findings, um, sometimes based on our own derivation, based on uh, recent scientific literature, but they would all be, you know, what would be ideal to protect against public health? So a lot of these legal limits are not as protective as they could be, based on what the current scientific findings are.
9: So what is PFAS? And more importantly, based on what we've just been talking about, why is there so much focus on it now, given the fact that it's one of the many contaminants that we should be looking at?
10: PFAS is actually a family of thousands of different chemicals, and they all share the same characteristic of them, and that they all have these carbon and fluorine bonds. And it's these really strong bonds that give them those properties of being stain resistant, water resistant, grease resistant, and that's why they're used in so many products. And it's those strong bonds that also make them really persistent in the environment, and they tend not to break down. They end up cycling in the environment, and they ended up in drinking water, soil, air, and then we're exposed to them. We have been working on this issue for decades now. The federal drinking water regulation is a long time coming. Um, We have known about drinking water pollution for quite some time. And the more that we test for it, the more that we're finding it. Um, And EPA is coming out again with another national testing data set, but it will take some time for that data to be available. So that's why we continue to do these smaller testing projects just to get more results out there and to show that this contaminant contamination is quite widespread. You know, we have been talking about them for a long time but now I just I think more people are talking about them just because I think the message is getting out there that the contamination is so widespread in the in the US. The most recent USGS report almost half of the taps in the US have detections. And I think, you know, also people are talking about them because of the new MCL proposal and what that means for our drinking water.
9: One of the things that uh, EWG does is that they work to identify what commercially available resources there are for people to utilize in their households. Are there any filters that you would recommend people use or or anything else that people can do?
10: We do recommend filtering your drinking water at home, um, in-home filters. Either granular activated carbon or reverse osmosis type drinking water filters in your home can greatly reduce PFAS exposure. Um, Filtering your drinking water is a really easy step that you can take to reduce these known exposures. Activated carbon filters are going to be a little bit uh, more cost accessible. The thing to remember with the carbon filters is that they need to be changed on time because if you don't change out the filter cartridge, they won't really work all that efficiently. So this is one way that people can do something, but absolutely recognizing that the mental burden of having to figure out what filter to buy, the economic burden of, you know, now I have to purchase a filter and use this. This shouldn't be placed on individuals or the community. Absolutely recognizing that it should be the polluters that are originally responsible for this and that have profited so much over over the last few decades. It should be the polluters that pay to fix this. That cost shouldn't be the burden of that community that that now has to deal with that existing pollution um, from here on out.
0: That was scientist Tasha Stroiber speaking with reporter Chris Schultz. For a longer version of the interview, visit wvpublic.org. A new Ohio law requires state agencies to consider proposals to drill for oil and gas under the state's public land, but activists are trying to rally people to stop fracking in state parks. The Allegheny Front's Julie Grant attended a recent rally to learn more.
5: Stand up, take hands off, leave our parks alone.
11: Singer, songwriter, and public health activist Jenny Morgan provided the entertainment for about 65 people at a pavilion near the beach at Salt Fork State Park in Guernsey County, southeast Ohio.
12: Everybody sing. stand up, say hands off. Drillers,
10: please go home.
11: In January, Governor DeWine signed a bill requiring agencies to consider proposals to drill under state-owned property. Since then, the Ohio Oil and Gas Land Management Commission created a process for drilling applications. Twelve have been submitted so far, including three at Salt Fork. The new group Save Ohio Parks organized this early July rally. Longtime environmental activist Roxanne Groff stood in front of signs that read, Ohio, fracking the heart of it all, and save our parks.
2: State taxpayers' lands that we own, we pay for
3: and we use. So the destruction that happens from that the landscape, you no longer have trees, you no longer have grass, you no longer have clean air, no longer have clean water.
11: We don't know which companies submitted applications so far. The state keeps those names confidential. Some are along highways and in wildlife areas. There are some at another state park, Wolf Run. And at Salt Fork, more than 14,000 acres of the 17,000-acre park have been proposed for fracking. It's a process that includes drilling horizontal wells for miles underground. Roxanne Groff doesn't want this at Salt Fork. Every inch of this park will have a lateral under it, sucking out the oil and gas. When Governor DeWine signed the law, he said his policy that prohibits drillers from accessing the surface of the parks would continue. So the above-ground work at Salt Fork would happen just outside of the park boundaries on land leased from private property owners. 16 well pads have been proposed around Salt Fork. Jim McGregor is a member of the commission, which will decide on the proposals to drill those lateral wells that collect gas from underneath the park.
7: We're not a rubber stamp. We can turn down these applications.
11: McGregor was appointed to the five-member commission to represent conservation organizations. Two members are from the oil and gas industry. The commission has heard from pro-fracking groups about their positive experiences and the financial benefits, and anti-fracking groups about the millions of gallons of water used in each fracked well and how that could impact water sources. McGregor says the commission could deny a nomination if it finds serious concerns.
4: By the same token, if they do meet uh, the safety uh, criteria, then, then I think we are obligated to approve the application.
11: In an email, the Ohio Oil and Gas Association called the commission transparent and accountable and said with this new law, there's now a standardized process for leasing state lands. Back at Salt Fork, attorney Austin Ware says he doesn't see long-term benefits for this area.
12: Columbus gets a, a microchip factory. They get set up for the
10: future. Southeastern Ohio, they get set up for the past.
11: For the Allegheny Front, I'm Julie Grant.
0: We've reported on the Mountain Valley Pipeline for years. And the pipeline is still incomplete. It's been held up because a federal court keeps throwing out its permits. Congress tried to have the last word on the MVP forcing its completion in a deal to raise the federal debt limit. A federal court then blocked construction again. But as we are making this week's show, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled to allow work to resume. But some energy analysts question whether the pipeline is even needed. WVPB's Curtis Tate spoke with Suzanne Matey of the Institute for Energy Economics and Financial Analysis. Who is
6: pushing for this pipeline? Where is the gas ultimately going?
3: We've said from the start that this was not a good idea. This was a very expensive pipeline going through very sensitive terrain and that there was not a compelling need. There was not a big line of people saying, we need this gas, bring bring this gas to us. The pipeline was driven by gas producers. You know, when you think about energy need, there's two ends of it someone has energy resources they feel a need to extract those and sell them someplace to make money but do the customers need it are they begging for it this pipeline was not driven by utility need it was driven by supplier need that was that was our view we when we first analyzed the pipeline project back in 2016 and we haven't really seen anything to change our view of that at this point.
6: What should have happened? Could any particular agency have given the project a more thorough examination?
3: This project should have been much more thoroughly examined from the get-go, right from the start at the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, which which is supposed to actually evaluate need and alternatives. They're the ones that are supposed to really do that right from the start, and they never did so there was a whole lot of debate that just never happened it didn't happen for that i saw the same problem with the williams pipeline that was supposed to run from pennsylvania to new york and the good thing there was that the state public service commission did its own evaluation of alternatives in connection with deciding whether they were going to allow ratepayers to have to pay for it the um, the capital expenses of the pipeline. And that's how it was stopped.
6: What's changed in public perception since construction began on this pipeline?
3: I think one thing that's changing nationwide is that landowners are becoming a lot less tolerant, a lot less tolerant of pipelines coming through their property. And that is changing the dynamic a lot. That was one of the things that that started affecting the uh, progress that was starting to be made on an extension to the Mountain Valley pipeline. You know, it was landowners that were really kicking up a fuss on that. So I think people are less tolerant. I think they know that there are other alternatives and ways to deal with things. We know that that there are ways to... Reduce energy demand, demand management, which can actually be surprisingly effective so that people change the times of day that they do certain things. Industries run certain operations at certain times of day so that you reduce the peak load. Because most of the time when these things are being built, they're not being built for the general day to day. They're really being built for peaks. And there are other ways to shave a peak. Than building a big, huge, gigantic infrastructure that you're going to have to live with for 40 years, whether you need it or not.
6: If there isn't going to be demand for this gas domestically, what about overseas?
3: We're seeing this with liquefied natural gas also. Our organization recently took a good look at what was happening with export because, you know, everybody, there was a huge rush to build liquefied natural gas terminals. You know, oh, we're going to supply Europe with a lot of natural gas and dah, dah, dah. And, they, and there was just a huge rush to do that and nobody planned it nobody <laughs> <laughs> like how much is europe really going to need how much can they even do they even have the infrastructure to accept and manage none of that you know none of that <laughs> happened so what we we projected ultimately was first of all Europe doesn't really want to be so heavily dependent on energy imports and they're getting a lot smarter about energy efficiency and you know wind and solar and and even even uh, geothermal And so the demand isn't going to be exactly what people expected. And number two, there's already been so many terminals built and so many contracts and things going on that there's going to be a glut. And we're looking at a really significant glut that will probably be surfacing between 2025 and 2027 when all these things that are being built right now they all come online and then they all start pumping gas into the system they're going to have financial problems yeah. they're going to have our time selling the gas at prices that allow them to make a profit so we've got fundamentally we have a real problem in this country in terms of energy planning it's just not happening the way it should
0: that was Suzanne Mattei of the Institute for Energy Economics and Financial Analysis, speaking with Curtis State. For the 13th year, nonprofit Feeding America is documenting food insecurity in all 50 states. Its most recent Map the Meal Gap report includes data for Kentucky's 120 counties. To put stories to those numbers, Stu Johnson spoke with food bank officials, volunteers, and recipients. Those working
12: to help get food into the hands of hungry Kentuckians are concerned the meal gap, or the number of families struggling to put food on the table, in many communities could increase. That data is starkly different from the narrowing of the gap that was recorded during an active period of coronavirus. Cassidy Wheeler is Advocacy Coordinator for Feeding Kentucky, a partner group of Feeding America.
5: The fear that we have here in the anti-hunger community is that now that these really impactful policies have ended, we are afraid that those numbers are going to go back to what they were pre-pandemic level. So, you know, we're afraid that those 65,000 Kentuckians who were lifted out of food insecurity are once again going to become food insecure.
12: God's Pantry Food Bank in Lexington serves 50 counties in central and southeastern Kentucky. CEO Mike Halligan says the number of households receiving food went from about 500 before the pandemic to 350 during COVID and now about 650. Part of the response says Halligan is increasing mobile pantry and health care services.
1: And if we're able to provide nutritious food when somebody is also getting the health care or the treatment that they need, Um, Now we've made it easier for folks to get nutritious food at the same same time that they're getting health care.
12: Economic challenges have been a reality of the communities served by God's Pantry. Halligan says broadband expansion and remote employment could help in the years ahead.
1: So it needs to be this balance of taking jobs to people, but also taking people to jobs. And there's a sweet spot in there somewhere that I think will help reduce hunger over time. It's not an easy fix. It's not something that's going to happen tomorrow.
12: In fact, Halligan says people who drive long trips to work from home in southeastern Kentucky have to deal with high gas costs while at the same time face household budget constraints. The God's Pantry leader says 11 Kentucky counties rank among the top 50 food insecure counties in the U.S., The Map the Meal Gap report shows two years ago, Wolf County had the highest food insecurity rate in Kentucky at 24 percent. The Abiding Hope food pantry is situated back off the road in Campton along a gravel drive behind the Bear Pen Worship Center. Bob and Bernice Wisman are coordinators for food distribution every other Friday year round.
4: We had an old building sit there on the end there. We finally got it moved out the other day and we're in the process of getting the sign fixed and putting on the end there.
12: Bernice Wisman says the pantry offers supplemental assistance with enough food for a couple of meals. Of the 65 to 80 people that come for food, she says they see a few new people every time.
2: The elderly breaks your heart. <laughs> They can't go out and and work a few days, mow a few yards, or or anything like that to earn a little extra money like some of the younger people can.
12: Wisman estimates about 65% of those participating in the pantry program are families with children. And the volunteer support is an important part of the process to make it all work.
2: One gentleman, he was actually there to get food when Bob and I first started out. And he said, you need some help. And I said, we sure do. He went and put his food in the car and came back. He's been with us ever since.
12: Jimmy Fraley says he's a member of the worship center. That's how he found out about the pantry. Fraley says it's a place he visits about three to four times a year.
6: A lot of times, you know, when you're on fixed income and and things like that, you know, you uh, start running low on money toward the end of the month. And uh, it's it's very helpful. Along with, you know, the... Everything, grocery prices have been
12: going up. Mary Morton has also come by the pantry. She says there may be fruit available, like blueberries, and Morton says her budget wouldn't normally allow that purchase.
10: Well, it
3: comes in handy because, you know, you've you got extra food and you got stuff you can eat, and it's different than what you would buy, and, and that helps you that way. And I can't wait to go <laughs> and get it.
12: Morton says the volunteers are very helpful in gathering the items and keeping the flow of distribution going. Pantry co-coordinator Bob Wisman says he wishes a pantry like this was operating when he was growing up in Wolf County. He said back in the 60s it was, quote, pretty rough up here in this part of the country. Wissman added little by little more jobs became available. Now, today, although the Wismans enjoy running the pantry, Bob hopes another couple will take over the reins at some point like they did four years ago. I'm Stu Johnson.
0: Typically, when there's a person with dementia in a family... The primary caregiver is a spouse or adult child. But more and more extended family members are taking on that role. Carex is a project at the Center for Gerontology at Virginia Tech that studies extended family caregivers in central Appalachia. WVPB's Eric Douglas spoke with project coordinator Brandy McCann about their work. So you're researching familial caregivers for people with dementia
13: the primary investigators for this study, uh, Karen Roberto and Tina Sabla, were doing a study based in Appalachian, Virginia, on service use and dementia caregiving. And so they noticed that about 10 to 15% of the sample was extended family caregivers. Uh, so when we say that, we mean like siblings who are helping out, grandchildren, nieces and nephews, and just other extended family caregivers, because typically it's an adult child or A spouse who is
6: in that primary caregiving role. How is it that these extended family members, what have you found so far?
13: So first of all, demographic changes that we know, larger demographic changes in the country and in the region. So in families science, which I'm a family scientist, we used to talk about families as being shaped like a pyramid. There were maybe one or two older adults at the top middle generation, you know, a few more, and then a lot of younger generation, right? And so you had this large circle of care for, of younger people to care for an older person. And now we see in family demogra- demographics that there are fewer of those younger generations to care for an older adult. And so they talk about moving from a pyramid structure to a bean pole structure. So that's one thing, there's just fewer, and we do see that. So there might be one niece, for example, who's caring for not only her mother, but her aunts as well, right? We also see divorce and repartnering across the lifespan, greater numbers of that. So maybe how stepkin may be involved uh, in the care of a person.
6: So tell me about the research you're doing and you're actively recruiting participants. What do you need from somebody to do?
13: we're asking that people be an extended family caregiver. So that would, again, be siblings, grandchildren, nieces and nephews, or any stepkin, that they see the person three times a week and are involved in their care, obviously. And so after they uh, meet the inclusion criteria, then we do one longer interview that usually takes about an hour and a half on the telephone. And then after end of that interview, so in that interview we would ask them a little bit about their family history. we have some open-ended questions. and then we just kind of ask some standard caregiver questions about how stressed they feel, that kind of thing. And then we do eight daily diaries after that. For eight evenings in a row we call and those take about 10 to 15 minutes and we just ask about the help they provided that day. or, or if they didn't, that's fine too. but yeah, so we do eight eight daily diaries. so it's nine days total. Uh, We do compensate people for their time. Um, So they do all nine days. We send a $110 gift card to them and also resources for whatever state. So we have done our homework there to try to find what resources people may have available. So, for example, in West Virginia, there's the FAIR program, uh, FAIR, that provides respite services for family caregivers of people with dementia. So, so
6: what's con- your end goal for this research? What What are you hoping to uncover or realize?
13: <laughs> yeah, well, it, this is a mixed method study, so we we do have uh, some hypotheses, but we're a little bit more open because it's more exploratory because it's focused on these other caregivers that we don't know much about. The goal is twofold. First of all, is to understand how these demographic changes that I mentioned earlier, such as divorce and repartnering, families becoming smaller in the younger generations, and movement, especially, you know, even in the Appalachian region, people may still move just within the region, um, but they're still farther away. So we want to understand how these larger demographic changes are impacting families in caregiving situations. So that's one. And the second one is focused on the service use, how we can help families overcome barriers to service use. Is it financial? Is it, you know, often uh, the person who has dementia, doesn't want services. And so that's very tricky to
0: handle. That was Brandy McCann at Virginia Tech speaking with Eric Douglas. To find out how to participate in the research, visit our website, wvpublic.org. next time thanks for joining us as we journey throughout Appalachia our theme music is by Matt Jackford other music this week was provided by the Carolina Chocolate Drops Sturgill Simpson Ron Molinix, Mary Hot and Noam Picklney. Bill Lynch is our producer Xander Alloy is our associate producer our executive producer is Eric Douglas Kelly Libby is our editor our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens you can find us on Instagram and Twitter at InAppalachia. Appalachia. You can also send us an email to InsideAppalachia at wvpublic.org. Visit wvpublic.org InsideAppalachia to subscribe or stream all of our stories. Or look for Inside Appalachia on your favorite podcast app. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting.
4: Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University, focusing on students' futures. Classes available at concord.edu apply.